This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we will be talking about, I'd say, a president that doesn't get some of the due that he deserves, the one Mr. Harry S. Truman. Indeed. I had to say it. I had to, had, say to, it. had to say it. Though. However, it, you know, it's, I was kind of wrestling with this because I almost want to say that Harry S. Truman is probably like the most influential president of the 20th century. And I know it's a bold statement because he's like quietly influential, but like extremely yeah. influential in the United States, especially, you know, our role in the world for, you know, the remainder of 20th century and beginning of 21st century. Well, if we, we look, I mean, well, I guess we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but when you're just looking at when he takes over, when he becomes president, no one, he didn't think he was going to become president. It was one of those guys, he just, it just kind of happens to him. Although I guess yeah. they should have kind of known what was going on with Roosevelt's health and everything, but he becomes president, the 33rd president. And then from there, like he's ushered in, we're in the middle of, we're towards the end of World War II. And, yeah. and now he becomes president. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of, responsibility that goes with that and then he's trying to usher in this new era in the united states which is the booming middle class that's that's uh growing you have everything else that's going on america comes out of world war ii as a superpower but it's also engaging in the cold war against the soviets so it's yep. a it's a really intense time in the world and he's he he's the president he's the one in charge he's the leader of the free world at this time so it's a lot of responsibility yep. on his shoulders when he wasn't really expected to do that yep and, you know, we kind of discussed, like, what should we do for our next, next podcast? And we're like, you know, let's kind of come back to the presidents. And for some reason, we just kind of were like, you know what? What about Truman? So, yeah, what about Truman? So let, let's get going. I mean, a little bit about Harry H. Truman before he became president, um, because he kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, this guy was by no means supposed to be president. It's kind of like no. the Teddy Roosevelt effect, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt's not supposed to be president. Truman essentially was a World War One vet, right? In 1917, um, he was in his early 30s. Uh, he listed a National Guard and then wound up being sent to France. He saw action in several campaigns. He, I think it was artillery, right? More of positive was artillery. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. He's from Missouri. He comes back, winds up getting married, eventually um, becomes you know, a county judge. And he gets kind of elected for, uh, you know, to run on FDR's re-election bid ticket for his fourth um consecutive term just a quick note now we no longer have because of this or after because, this yeah. the 22nd amendment was passed shortly after fdr's death to ensure that no president could run for more than two terms but at that point in time fdr was running for a fourth term and he dropped his current vice president in favor of henry, henry wallace yeah he gets yep. he gets rid of henry wallace basically fell out of favor with the democrats yeah. So, um, and Supreme Court Justice William Douglas was actually one of the preferred candidates. There was a bunch mm -hmm. of other people. Um, Truman was basically a compromise, and Roosevelt did not know him very well. And that yeah. was one reason I get, we'll talk about, I'm sure also, was that Roosevelt kept Truman in the dark about a lot of what was going on. Because he didn't really know Truman. He didn't necessarily, I wouldn't say he didn't trust him, but didn't have that rapport with him that he had with some other people in the Democratic Party. Remember, at the time Roosevelt was on his fourth term, although he was still very popular he, with the people, he was losing some favor a lot of Democrats. They weren't really happy. The lot of people weren't too happy that he was running for a third term. 
Yeah. That's a future podcast. But then yeah. going into the, uh, yeah. the fourth term, he really didn't have that support that he had before. Because again, people were saying, this is kind of a long time. This is a bit much. And a lot of your policies, we don't not necessarily agreeing with as much. So Truman was basically a compromise based on, on like William Douglas and James Barnes, some of these other strong candidates that other people wanted. Because Truman's like, yeah, yeah, Truman's fine. No one could find anything that they didn't like about him, but nothing they really didn't like like about him either. He was just kind of this like easy choice. He was just vanilla. He was just uh, – Literally. I think that's the best way to put he, it. He was just like this easy go-to. It's not the best, but he's not the worst and he's just going to be – it's going to be okay with him. But then Roosevelt dies. But Truman um, – Roosevelt really didn't tell him much about what was going on in the war. I think they only met like – a handful of times, times, yeah. As you know, because he was only his vice president for a few months before the, you know, um, the stroke, you know, that killed, you know, the, the well, Roosevelt had the stroke, yeah. but um, during that time, they only met for lunch, like I think three times or something ridiculous. Yeah, like that. Roosevelt, uh, um, Truman basically was just dealing with the Senate. That's but he just dealt with matters in the Senate for the most part. Yeah, and Roosevelt. So was the, one, the most the important thing, and I think the most important thing that really we need to mention here is the fact that Truman had no idea about the top secret you know atomic bomb project that we were developing you know and that and it's interesting because that is what truly kind of i think embodies his presidency you know and sets the tone for his presidency and yet he didn't really know anything about it until after he became president there's a very famous quote from truman when he became president and he said that he felt like the moon the stars and all the planets had fallen on me you know and when uh, there's also another famous one when he goes and meets with Eleanor Roosevelt when he finds out that he's about to be sworn in as president because of FDR's death and he was like oh, was there anything i can do for you and then she she looked at him and she goes oh no mr president is there anything we can do for you you're the one in trouble now um you know it was a lot of pressure for this guy oh, so yeah. while he becomes president within days he becomes privy to this top secret file well, yeah, fyi yeah. He's actually told right. by Secretary of War, right? Henry Stimson yeah. at the time. Um, actually, moments after he was sworn in, he kind of pulls him aside yeah. and says, listen, this is what we're working on. And he tells him it's the most terrible weapon ever known in human history. And Truman's like, what are you talking about? So he sees, then he explains it to him. He's shown the notes. And Truman's kind of shocked. Like, how was I not made aware of this before? And they're like, well, it was need to know basis. And you weren't need, need to know, know. then, and now you need to know. <laughs> so we're telling you now. The basic, yeah. the basic response by Stimson was like, "Well, we're telling you now, so yeah. it doesn't matter. You know now, so here we go." And um, this development of the atomic bomb, and this becomes like a really big deal with Truman. Obviously, like we're talking about, but also now Truman has this in his back pocket when he meets with the other war leaders later on, particularly Stalin. Right? He's there yeah. with Stalin, with the other world leaders of the Allied nations. By this time, I think they're calling themselves the United Nations, correct? Yeah, nah, like, yeah, nah, on the border. Yeah, yeah. on the border. No, the term has been, yeah, it's it was, around it, was like, it was like a poster, which was the first time yeah. when it was actually said. Yeah. So I think technically they're calling themselves a United Nations. It's not the peacekeeping force we know today, but the Allied forces are calling themselves yeah. a United Nations. And Roosevelt knows about this. And he, I'm Roosevelt, yeah. excuse me, Truman knows that he has this atomic yeah. bomb in his back pocket. And he thinks he's going to use this to kind of one up Stalin, where Truman doesn't know that Stalin knows he has it too. Yeah, because of the spies he has in the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, and Stalin's kind of waiting to see here. Like Stalin, he didn't like he didn't get along with Churchill. I wouldn't say he got along with Roosevelt, but they kind of had this. I don't want to say it's not. It wasn't respect, but they kind of just understood each other to a certain degree. 
Roosevelt and Stalin. They kind of like understood where each other stood. And Stalin was very paranoid, very uh, we know this, right? Very paranoid, very worried about who, who's going to do what. His enemies always have to get him. And he didn't know what to think of Truman yet. But Truman did not trust Stalin. He, he did not want to really have anything to do with him. Yeah, and, and and initially, or supposedly rather, he pulled Stalin to the side, you know, at this meeting and, you know, tries to like kind of flex a little bit. And yeah. he's like, hey, you know, FYI, like just we have this weapon. And the war in Europe is pretty much over. And, you know, he's trying to flex in the sense that I have this weapon. It's like a destroyer of cities. And he writes later in his diary that, so like, weirdly, Stalin was not too faced. He just was like, he nodded. He was like, oh, okay, you know, okay, duh, he knew. Duh. He knew everything. That because he, he knew. He knew yeah. everything, yep. So let's get into this. I mean, uh, I think that's a whole other podcast, the Manhattan Project and the atomic weapon, you know, creation. But oh, ultimately right. what happens is we do create an atomic weapon. We test it in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. With their very first te- successful test of atomic weapon, yeah, successfully tested, and then we create two bombs, and we you know we kind of make it seem as if we have lots of these, and especially to the Japanese, the idea is like, oh yeah, we could just we have so many of these, but we really we really don't. I mean, at the time we really had constructed three: the one that we tested, and then Fat Man and Little Boy. Boy yeah, and then they were kind of maybe finishing another one, but um, they weren't they weren't quite there yet. Yeah, and definitely not what we were trying to send, and definitely not the message we were trying and to send. And there was a lot of debate on what to do because yeah. a lot of the scientists at Los Alamos, again, I don't want to, we don't want to get too into this now. Yeah. They were building this because they thought they were racing with Germany. Yep. And then when Germany loses a war, when they're done by conventional means, in, uh, in, when they surrender in May, they're like, well, we don't need to finish this anymore. And they're saying, no, we still have to deal with the Japanese. And they weren't like the Japanese. They're not on the same level. They even had this with the scientists. They're like, no, 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 no. We, you know, we spent all this money. It has to be used. Plus, it, we still have to end this war. No matter what, we don't know. They were playing the invasion of Japan, which was going to be, which was going to make D-Day look small. Again, yeah. we can get to that in another time. Yeah, Operation Downfall. Yeah, X Day, right? X Day, I believe, was yeah. going to be called. Yeah, X Day, Operation yeah. Downfall. And it was just going to be, it was going to be, it was going to dwarf D-Day, but. They, they have this weapon. What are they going to do with it? And there's some that saying maybe we should show like an example, like invite the Japanese delegation to New Mexico, detonate the bomb, let them see it. And a lot of them say, that's not a good idea. What are they going to do? So one of the first things that Truman does authorize is he does authorize the dropping of pamphlets in a lot yes. of these Japanese cities that warns them, listen, you're going to, you have to surrender. You have to encourage your government to surrender because if you don't, it's going to, we're going to destroy the city. We're going to unleash fire on your city. We're going to unleash death on your on these sounds. And it were dropped everywhere. It wasn't just Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were dropped in many other cities as well. And yeah. we were firebombing Japan at this point. So a lot of them didn't really get the concept of what this And that's kind of what I be. think we need to bring up too. I mean, if you think about the firebombing of just conventional bombing of a, Japan. A lot of them more, yeah, more died. Yeah. That. Like if you compare this, right, think of um, like Hiroshima, right? It says the atomic bomb killed about 80,000 people. Pulverized by five square miles wrecked additional 10 square miles of a city, so on and so forth. But if you compare that with the results of two B-29 incendiary raids over Tokyo, right? The first bombing raid killed about 125,000 people and the other one nearly 100,000 people. So we were killing the Japanese at the same numbers, rate numbers, which is terrible, way before the atomic weapons were even dropped. It was just the sheer fact that now we could do it with one bomb. With one bomb. That was the major difference. So when Truman um, decides to do this, and he, he later on, you know, because it's so controversial, I mean, it's something you and I teach, and pretty much it's in a curriculum for every US2 
um, United States history teacher, you know, whether this was morally right for Truman to do. But Truman later stated that the final, you know, this is a quote, the final decision of when and where to use the atomic bomb was up to me. Let there be no mistake about it. I regarded the bomb as a military weapon and never had any doubt that it should be used. And he tells his sister later on in life too, he says um, he made the, it was made the only decision I ever knew how to make. So he knew he had to do it. And his mindset was basically, well, a lot of the military was thinking too. We already at this point, when I say we, I mean the United States government yeah. decided, listen, we're, we're, we're bombing civilians. We've already crossed yeah. that moral line. Does it matter? And this is you know, a debate that's still out there. Does it matter that we're dropping conventional bombs, fire bombs, atomic bombs? Once you cross that line, you bombing civilians, does it matter anymore how you're bombing them? That's the idea. And again, they, they yeah. knew this thing was going to be destructive. They just didn't have ex- exact numbers yet. They, didn't, they knew of radiation. They didn't know all the details about radiation. And there's a lot of um, information. Again, we're getting kind of more into atomic bomb here, but a lot of information out there, um, documents and such have come out to say a lot of them wanted to drop the bomb to see what it's going to do to people. Like, let's yeah. see what this radiation is going to do to people. Say, this is going to be the future of warfare. What's this really going to be? How's it going to affect people? And because they had such little information on radiation at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's just and, crazy. You know, and, and the reason why we're, we're getting into this is because to this day, we are officially the only nation in the history of the world, officially, to have used an atomic or nuclear weapon against a people. In warfare, yes. Yep. In warfare, yeah. Like, um, you know, and that's kind of why true. this sets up Truman. And he saves, ultimately, a lot of American lives. I think, you know, people argue this and whether you know, try to dispute that. But as you mentioned, there was going to be a massive invasion of Japan. And this massive invasion, based on the predictions of how many casualties um, we suffered from the taking of Iwo Jima and um, Okinawa, the two closest islands to mainland Japan, it was decided that this would be completely catastrophic to the American soldiers. So many GIs view Truman as their favorite president because he ultimately saved their lives. And and even when we spoke to, you know, Mr. Sipple a few weeks back, I mean, he said flat out Harry Truman was his favorite president for making that decision. It was not an easy decision to make. Uh, it was not taken lightly. But the way he looked at it was, hey, you know what? If Germany had that weapon, they would have used it. If if the Japan Japanese had that weapon, they would have used it. So, again, controversial, but it sets us on a different path. And the reason why it sets us on a different path, and this is something that Truman has to navigate through as well, and it's something you mentioned earlier on, this bomb makes us the most powerful country in the world. There is a huge paradigm shift here because before World War II starts, you have England as still the mighty empire, the biggest world empire. And then, you know, there's that little period of you know, challenges, you know, or challengers, I should say, when you have Japan in the East and you have Germany in the West. Once the war ends, U.S. takes that mantle of the most powerful country in the world. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. And what does that actually mean? So when I tell my students, I might go on a little quick tangent here, but when I talk to when I talk to my students about this, I often kind of compare this in, with philosophy. And when you look at Hobbes and Rousseau and, and Locke and you try to discuss the meaning of power and what it actually means to have power, uh, power equals right. 
you know, if you have the power, you determine what is right. If someone, you know, if so, if I'm about to go into a fight with Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 1970s, um, I would lose most definitely if you look at the size difference, right? You would probably to, lose to him now, too, Pete. I'm not. Of course. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no. Of course. He just but, had heart uh, surgery. Yeah. But. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even then, I would lose. Um, no, but if you look at it, you know, power is having something that the other person doesn't, but have, but really needs. So yes. in this case, Arnold has the strength, and I don't. So he has the power. But let's say that he's about to punch me, and he chokes on a piece of gum. You know, I say this to my students. I use this analogy all the time. And he falls down, and I know CPR. Now I have the one thing he needs, so I have the power. And, you know, if if power determines what is right. If someone walks into a room with a gun, and I don't have a gun, and they say jump, I'm not going to question whether that's the right thing to do. I'm going to say, yes, I will jump. Like, I'm not questioning that. Power will determine what is right. And that's why it's important when a nation is the most powerful nation in the world, that nation basically determines what is right. I mean, we have shaped the world over since 1945, you know, with ideas of, of democracy, with ideas of capitalism, right? Yeah. Free market we, economy. Yeah, they did that because that we, we did that because we had the bomb. Exactly. Because major, we had something major, others yeah. didn't. We yeah. determined what was right. And I tell my students all the time that that is monumental that Truman dropped that bomb because we showed the world that not only do we have this weapon that no one else does, but we are willing to use it. And from that second on, from that point forward, we become the most powerful nation in the world. And, you know, we have to protect that to ensure that we still determine what is right in the world, which is why we get involved in the Cold War. What's going on in the Cold War, the arms race, that pretty much lays the foundation for really domestic, but definitely international politics for the next 60 years, 70 years. All right. So you want to get into a little bit of Truman's role Um, before we get domestic? You want to get into like the foreign? Because I think that really is where I think that sets it up a little bit. So Cold War and Truman. Right? What do you got for me? Well, obviously he comes in. Okay, one of the major things that they have to do after the fall of the Axis powers is to rebuild Asia, yeah. uh, rebuild basically Japan, rebuild Germany, Europe, and yeah. Europe as a whole, um, while dealing with what's going on with the Russians. So he starts putting in. We know about the Marshall Plan. We know about things of that nature. He puts in MacArthur over in Japan, basically to write a constitution. Mm-hmm. That um, Japan still follows today. It's one reason why they don't have a military and things of that nature. But one of the yeah. big tests that he has early on is actually um, that I would like to talk about a little bit is when Stalin kind of tests him early on um, onset of the Cold War with the um, the whole idea of the Berlin airlift. That's what basically yeah. comes with that. When yeah. the Soviets block off Berlin, you have to understand about Berlin in case some some people don't realize is although Germany was split into different zones four zones right after World War II, so was Berlin. But Berlin itself was in the Soviet zone. So it was like an island of democracy. Uh, West Berlin was a small little island of democracy, basically, in this vast ocean of Soviet-controlled space. And they they block off, when I say they, I mean the Soviets, they stop all of the trail lines, close all the roads, because they want West Berlin to become part of Berlin again. That's yeah, you whole... know, it's it just I kind of want to jump in real quick. Go ahead. Um, I visited Berlin um, numerous times when I was a kid when it was still, split. you know, West Germany, East Germany, and Berlin was still split. So I actually have pictures, you know, by the Berlin Wall, with my dad holding me on his, you know, on his shoulders when I was a little kid. And it, sure enough, as you said, it was a little island. I remember driving through 
you know, East Germany, which was poverty stricken. It was yeah. so communist poor. And then we would enter Berlin into the Western portion of Berlin. And it was like the United States. That's I mean, what it even, was, as a, yeah. even as a kid, I was able to, to pick that See up. The difference. It was crazy. So, all right. Well, so uh, go ahead. Yeah. What happens? Berlin, well, and, yeah. And BC, it's, basically, it's basically Stalin trying to force the allies out, right? Force the Western mm-hmm. powers out. That the people there are going to get so hungry that they're going to starve, that they're not going to be able to heat their homes because no coal is going to be coming in, that they're going to ask the Soviets to take over, right? Yeah, he closes all the highways to Berlin yeah, the railroads in 1948. Yeah. Yep. So they don't. They need to figure out what to do. And they, they know if they – they're not going to go to war over this. They, they want to avoid war. They just ended a war. They don't want to start another one. So what Truman oversees is the base of this Berlin airlift, which is going to be – these flights that are going to come in and they're going to drop and deliver food and clothing and all coal, everything that, that, that's needed. And they're going to be going basically around the clock and mm-hmm. it increases and it increases. And again, that's a podcast in itself talking about this Berlin airlift and what's going on. And what it basically does is it forces Stalin to eventually back down. And this yeah. was a huge event because it really showed that America, one, it shows like um, that we're thinking out for the box, how we're going to get supplies and what we're going to drop in an air. It shows how strong our Air Force was and we, we had this ability to do something like this. And it also showed they had guts because doing something like they're staring Stalin in the face. Okay. Now it's your move. And Stalin didn't really have a move because if he shoots down any of these planes, which he could have easily done, that's an act of war. And mm-hmm. he's not about to go to war over this either. Yep. So and they knew and, that. You know, and the thing here is, this is the beginning of, as we mentioned, the Cold War. You have, the United States has the atomic weapon. Soviet Union is still behind us on that, although they're working towards it. And when they don't, they don't have, have, Yeah, I'm sorry. They don't have the atomic it, bomb yet. Not Close. yet. Not for another year. Um, so what essentially is happening here, Soviet Union, and we need to, I think we need to give credit where credit's due. I think World War II ultimately was won by Soviet Union, at least in Europe. Um, well, the, ground, the ground war, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, if Soviet what was Union the, didn't hold what was the, the old Axis... Saying? I'm, yeah. sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The old saying okay. was the um, World War II... What was it? The World War II was one with British, British espionage, right? British spies, yep. American goods, tanks, planes, everything like that, yep. and Soviet lives. Yep. A, they were, over 20 million people die in the, fighting yep. the Nazis in the Soviet Union. So Stalin kind of feels like they were supposed to be the ones to take on this pinnacle, you know, go on a pinnacle and become this most yeah. powerful nation. And they didn't. We kind of beat them to it. And this is terrible how we're talking about this. We beat them to it. We're talking about human lives and dropping weapons. But we did beat them to it in that sense of trying to get power and become the most powerful nation. And that sets off what becomes known as the Cold War, where you have Soviet Union under Stalin and the United States under Truman kind of going head to head of, all right, who's going to blink first kind of deal. And a Berlin airlift, one other thing that I want to add to it, Stalin's like, you know what? I'm going to close these roads. And these guys, yeah, let them deliver milk and food and drop it on, you know, parachute it into Berlin. But they're going to give up soon. But we didn't. Yeah. We did this for 327 days. And just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And planes landed, like you said, every minute yeah. around the clock, like 277,000 flights. You and know, it got to and- the point where they weren't just bringing base supplies. They're bringing like candy. They're bringing toys, yes. like, things like, like, like leisure goods. And when they're starting to bring like the leisure goods, these Western goods, that's when Stalin's like, well, I can't compete with that because they don't have that type of. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. 
It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Yeah, Those leisure goods that you're saying, West, East Germany, East Berlin, it's poor. Oh, yeah. So, uh, a communist you, society cannot compete with a capitalist society when it comes to consumables. Chocolate. When consumables. it comes to Hershey yeah. chocolate. Yeah. yeah. So another thing is, since we're in the realm of foreign policy, that Truman kind of really sets us up for at least, this is 1945, he sets us up, I think, till 1990. And that is the Truman Doctrine and this yes. idea of containment. Yeah, the way that Truman looked at this world was, all right, well, so it's us versus them. And Stalin's not necessarily a good guy. And therefore, we need to somehow contain communism. And he gets this uh, whole idea of instead of fighting them directly, because no one wants another war. Truman doesn't want another war either. So he goes, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to try to contain them, like throw a net on the world, I guess, and try to contain communism like a virus from spreading and growing. Where it is, it can stay. It's just not going to go anywhere else. Exactly. That's the idea. And the way he looked at it is, well, the best way to do it is... He viewed nations that were poor, that had no money, that were destroyed by World War II. He said that they would tend to lean towards communism. So therefore, his view is, you know what? Why don't we help these nations build themselves up? Give the, let's give them money. Let's build their economy up. Let's bring democracy and capitalism to these nations. And if the people in those nations are have jobs and are happy, they're going to want to lean towards us versus leaning towards Soviet help. And therefore, you know, that's kind of how Marshall Plan comes about. That's how Truman Doctrine comes about. I mean, we, we end up giving, like, you know, the first initially, 47, Truman asked Congress for $400 you know, million in economic military aid, right? Starts with Greece and Turkey because there was a fear that they were going to fall into mm-hmm. communism. And the idea is, like, let's just throw money at these nations. Let's, and that's another thing that was controversial at the end of World War II is Truman's the one that says we need to build up West Germany. And people are like, what are you talking about? Like a year ago, Hitler was there and we were fighting them. What do you mean we need to build them up? And he goes, no, no, no. We need to build up West Germany to, again, show that it's better to live in a democracy than it would be if you look at East Germany, which is kind of where this idea of the Berlin Airlift also comes into play. Truman is also the one that gets us into the NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We know that, which is a military pact. But I think his next big test comes with relation to uh, Korea, right? Well, even before that, I mean, we're talking about containment. And one of the main thing reasons why I had a containment we have to touch on really fast, I think, would be, what happened, was, would be China. Yep. The idea that I think one reason why he really emphasizes this containment and then Korean War happens as it does is because of what happens in China. And the fact that um, a lot of the conservatives in Congress and everything blame Truman for, quote, unquote, lo- losing China. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, George Marshall was basically saying, listen, in 1946, if you want the, these nationalist forces to win, we're going to have to put a very large scale U.S. intervention in there. Otherwise, the communists are going to win. And Truman was worried by doing that, it was going to weaken our ability to um, be the opposition to the Soviets. 
So he was like, which one is worse? Letting China fall to Soviet, to um, communism, or being having to pull back and not being as in a strong as position against the Soviets. And he saw the Soviets as a real enemy. And which will lead to the Korean War. Because I don't think if they don't lose China, I don't when I say they on the United States, I don't think the government, I don't think they care as much about Korea if yeah. if they don't lose China. And at the same time, it, Korean War is the fact that we did get involved and the fact that you know, kind of what comes out of it is so important for just geopolitics since then. I mean, look how successful South Korea is economically, you know, politically in the world and in the region. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the United States intervention, even though it was kind of, they kind of messed it up a little bit, right? It was kind of butch. At well, yeah, again, that's a whole podcast in itself, the Korean War, but it's... Well, you want to give a little quick like recap as to what happened here, right? So well, you have North Korea and South Korea is divided at the end. It was they were taken over by Japan, right? Um, the peninsula is taken over by Japan. By well, first, 19- they were taken over by Russia. I mean, it's a whole yep. history there. But yeah, then, yep. it's, then it's Japan and Japan by like 1910 during World War II. The Japanese troops occupy it. The war ends. Japan loses, so Japan leaves, um, and it's decided that you know what we kind of weren't sure whether because there's a movement that is pro-communism and then there's like a movement that's kind of anti-communism or democratic. So it is decided by the United Nations at the end of the war that, you know, we're not going to decide whether it's going to be communist or whether it's going to be democratic. We're just going to split them for now. So they split them by the 30th parallel, right? You have the North Korea and South Korea. North Korea is a lot more communist. South Korea is more democratic it is also backed by the united states through monetary donations and then what ultimately happens uh in june 25th 1950 north korean forces sweep across the 30th parallel surprise attack south korea and boom no pun intended the korean war starts starts which has never actually ended yes it's still technically technically. i met you know it's funny i remember us having this conversation this is so funny but um, we were sitting at a bar eating chicken wings when we were like 22 years old, probably having this conversation. Probably and I, I, I remember it right now. And that was a long time ago. That's yes. what we did. We used to sit there and talk about much different times. Korea. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, it was, and now, now we're doing the same thing, just recording it. <laughs> yeah. A little different. Well, again, Truman, he, he's in the Korean war. He's the commander in chief and yep. Douglas MacArthur is going to, is the commander. And at first the UN forces come in. They're they're fighting. They're doing very well. They're driving the Korean forces, the communist forces, back. It was a river. Well, the point is, they were they were supposed yeah they were supposed to stop. Stop. And... They were supposed to stop. Yeah, because they really basically around the thirty. They were only supposed to drive the communist forces out of South Korea. Yeah. That that was the whole point. He continues to yeah, McCarthy got happy McCarthy and continues to push, and it basically it freaks out China. Yes, because he gets right up to the border of China, border of China. and China's afraid that that the UN is going to use this or the Americans are going to use this as an excuse to invade China and then destroy the communist government there. This is nineteen. This is nineteen fifty. It's only a few. It's like a year after the, the communist revolution in Russia and uh, China, basically. So they send hundreds of thousands of troops, not well armed, not well trained, but just that's China's greatest power at this point. Is they have so many people, they just send hundreds of thousands of troops over the border into into uh, South Korea to drive. Now, they drive the UN forces back. Mm-hmm. Oh, they like destroy us. Well, they basically won't, they almost push us off the peninsula. And then it's basically this dual um, land and sea invasion 
like they go around the, the of, of the on this port and they're able to again if we were going in Korea we get do a lot more details with this but they're able to drive them back and then it basically becomes a stalemate. They do drive them a little bit past the thirtieth parallel, then they retreat back to the thirtieth parallel and then it becomes a stalemate pretty much for the rest of the war. Right and there, the thirtieth parallel. Yeah, and this is where MacArthur goes a little. A little this is where MacArthur, there. yeah, because MacArthur wants to start dropping atomic bombs. Yes, and I have a quote from him, which is, <laughs> it just kind of says it all. Um, of all my campaigns of my life, 20 major ones to be exact, Korea was the one I felt most sure of was the one I was deprived of waging. I could have won the war in Korea in a maximum of 10 days. I would have dropped between 30 to 50 atomic bombs on his air bases and other depots strung across the neck of Manchuria. It was my plan as our amphibious forces moved south to spread behind us from Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea, right? A belt of radioactive yes. cobalt. Like That's he wanted right. to drop fifty atomic weapons on China yeah, and North Korea, and he got him like ready. He was like, "All right, let's get these things." He he actually sent orders yeah. to stop it, 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 that would have started World War Three, and that's Russia, when Truman was like, uh, "No, no, no!" Retaliated. Yeah, Truman is like, "I'm meeting with this guy like tomorrow." <laughs> so they did. They they met, and it was very tense because we have to understand that MacArthur was like the Eisenhower of the Pacific. I mean, this guy is considered a one of the you know greatest oh, military famous, yeah. heroes you know in american history and you know they, they kind of credit him although it probably should have been marshall but they credit him in winning the pacific war or you know starting to win the pacific Being war japanese and he did he did do a lot in japan as far as towards yeah he was as the, rebuilding japan the with the constitution yeah. and everything like that he was he was basically the you want to say the emperor the leader of japan yeah yeah he that's what he became during a uh, peacetime right after so Truman does something that no one thought he would do because everyone, again, Harry Truman is a shorter guy. He has these thick glasses and everyone kind of sees him as like this quiet dude. But Truman, you could you didn't mess around with Truman. He basically went out and said, you know what, dude, you're not dropping these weapons. MacArthur got a little pissy with him and he goes, oh, yeah, boom. And he fires him. Yeah, I mean, first of all, he fires him and then he replaces him, right, with Omar Bradley. But... When MacArthur comes back home to the United States, they throw him like a huge parade. Like this is where it shows you how unpopular of a decision yeah. this was by Harry S. Truman. But at the same time, what as you said, what Truman does here, yeah, he destroys his own popularity. Yeah, his poll numbers most definitely dropped after you know firing MacArthur, but he just prevented World War Three. Yes, well, yeah, hundred percent. Right, uh, absolutely. Because if MacArthur does that, that's going to spark. The Soviet Union are going to respond by dropping nuclear bombs on our soldiers there. Again, this is the time before you know transcontinental ballistic missiles. They're, they're not going to be hitting U.S. soil with any of these bombs, but it's going to it's going to wipe out Southeast Asia, probably Western Eastern Europe. Yeah, millions of lives lost. Yeah, and then. I don't have much more for foreign policy because I think this kind of truly embodies like what he was about. But he does do one thing that, again, by just this one action, changes the world in a sense. He's the president that recognizes the new state of Israel. Yeah. And he's kind of instrumental in the creation of Israel doing after that, yeah. the war. If, when it comes to foreign policy, establish, dropping a bomb of ending World War II, undisputedly, um, setting up the United States as a world power – testing that in a sense by creating numerous 
um, friendships, you know, and treaties around the world with nations by supporting them through money, you know. And, Develops, and, he also um, authorized the development of the hydrogen bomb. Yes. So that goes right. even further. It's just, again, it's the arms race, but also this is where we're putting our money with this military. We need to have the, a strong military. What do we need that strong military for? Because if the Soviets, his his defense for that, a lot of people are saying, why do we need a hydrogen bomb? Like at this point, you know, the hydrogen bomb is so much. Basically, a atom bomb is a fuse for a hydrogen bomb, just to give you a little bit of like context there. Um, and the idea of, he says, basically, if the Soviets can build one, we have to build one too. So yeah. let's we have to have it. Let's face it, a mindset. He could run for another term. Um, he chooses not to. And he's we should he yeah down. we should talk a little bit about what happens though I guess right like in forty yeah so yeah so let's um do you want to do that or you want to get into like what he did on a domestic front because I think he did some things on a domestic front that need to be mentioned well, as well there's a lot a lot of the some of the first thing he deals with with the domestic front I guess yeah we'll get into his yeah that's a domestic and then we'll get into why he steps down well one of the big things I think um he walked into just a mess after the war mm-hmm. um especially when it comes to labor. In the United States, because Absolutely. we're coming, we're going from a war economy where you have essentially everyone who can work working, to now all these soldiers coming home. They need jobs. What are we going to do? And you see a lot of strikes, particularly in 1946, throughout the country. And it's not easy. It's not an easy transition from a war to a peacetime economy. And Truman really was wanted to like diminish a lot of the military service as quickly as possible contail all these government military spending and things like that. And that costs a lot of jobs. So a lot of these labor strikes that they kind of like these labor workers who agree, listen, we won't strike during the war, but we were promised certain things once the war is over. And now the war is over. Where's what we prom- what was promised to us? Yep. And that became and a major thing cool. he was dealing with. And this is a, kind of interesting in that sense as well, because a lot of people don't see it this way, but the one way to control, you know, the thousands of, American, actually like 15 million American soldiers, uh, soldiers, right? Sailors and Marines returned back to civil life, right? 15 million. Yeah. Um, so these 15 million would are going to go back into the workforce, as you said. It's going to displace a lot of people that have been working. So the one way to kind of try to ease that a little bit was the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, which is more popularly known as the GI Bill of Rights. GI Bill of Rights. That was huge. GI yep. Bill. I mean... The idea was to transition these 15 million veterans to a peacetime economy, right? So how do you do that? Well, why don't you give them the opportunity to continue their education at government's expense, right? It buys some time for the government and it gives Truman some time to figure out the economy, you know, while these GIs are not necessarily flooding the workforce. And it also obviously gave like $16 billion in low investment, you know, government-backed loans, um, to buy homes, farms, you and know, that starts businesses. to build. That starts to build the middle class. Yes, that we that from the 1950s. That whole leave it to Beaver suburb concept can't really happen. That won't wouldn't have happened without the GI Bill of Rights. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and Truman does kind of have a role in in that the creation of that. And he really Absolutely. tried to get Congress. I mean, you have you really try to get Congress to kind of continue price controls, wartime price controls, you know, inf- hold the inflation in check. And unfortunately for him, a lot of his own party turned against him. And, you know, these people, uh, politicians were more commonly known as Dixiecrats, which were Southern Democrats. And the reason that they turned against him is, I mean, you want to get into it? He's the first modern president ever to use his powers to challenge racial discrimination. 
Yeah, well, because he he realized what I have the actual order written down somewhere. What was it? But he basically desegregated the armed forces. Yes, he said. He said this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yep. They fought in World War Two side by side, and he signs a lot of other legislation that actually creates the Air Force. It merges the Department of Defense and things of that nature. It creates essentially the CIA. And he's doing all of this with his um, war axe. Yes. And um, he wanted to do a lot more too. And what he had here too was a lot of these Dixiecrats, they kind of were not happy with Roosevelt and they're taking a lot of that out on Truman now too. They see the executive branch was becoming too powerful. That's the yes. big criticism. So it's time for the legislative branch to take back some of that power. And Truman was kind of seen getting the, the crosshairs because of that. Yep. And then it didn't help the situation, you know, that he bypasses the Democrat, the Democrats that controlled the key committees in Congress. Yeah, he just skipped uh, them. By saying, you know what, you know, because I, I, he, he was talking about desegregation and he's talking about this in 1940s. He's talking about universal health care. Yeah, I was just going to say he, he wanted universal health care. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the Obamacare that, you know, Truman is, is talking about this in 1945. That's what he wants. He wants universal health care. He wants low-income housing. He called this whole domestic policy the fair deal. The fair deal. He, yeah, he wanted, wanted to double. Get... He wanted to double the minimum wage. Yep. I mean, these are the, the fundamental pinnacles, yeah. I guess, of Democratic he, Party today. Yeah, but that, this is Truman in the 1940s. Yeah. Yeah. He wanted to go from 45 yeah. cents to 40 cents to 75 cents. Ooh, almost double. <laughs> yes, but yeah. It, yeah, but it was a huge increase. Um, obviously, it didn't happen. And these yep. are the same arguments. This is what's always they talk about history repeating itself, right? These are some of the same arguments: national healthcare versus private healthcare, socialized medicine is it right? Is it wrong? We have to come keeping healthcare costs down, right? Yeah. Is it really fair for all Americans with the privatized healthcare things of that nature? Increasing minimum wage, how it's important. What is a minimum wage? How can it be federal loans and stuff like that? Um, college tuition—that's kind of what the GI Bill of Rights is, right? It's letting the yeah. soldiers go to school and they can help pay for it. These are all things that are still being talked about now, and they're talking about in the '40s. Yeah, crazy. I mean, he, I mean, he really—the last few years of his presidency—he really urged Congress to create the Fair Employment Practices Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea was to prevent employers from discriminating against the hiring of African Americans, and it was blocked by Southern Democrats. But like. This guy was almost like ahead of its time, ahead of his time with his policies. And he almost didn't win his real election. Because remember, he became president when FDR died. And he had to run to be officially elected really again. Like because obviously FDR died within a couple months into the fourth term. So Truman had the whole term. And when he ran, no one thought he was going to win. Like I said, there was his own party didn't necessarily back him. And he won by... You know, with 303 electoral votes, which was like and like 49.6 percent of the popular vote and his opponent, Thomas Dewey, Dewey. right, captures 189 electoral votes and 45.1 percent of the popular vote. What needs this is such a famous picture. If you guys get a chance to Google this, no one thought that Truman was going to win and newspapers started printing. Well, there was a printer strike going on. That's one reason too that they printed it yeah. early because yeah, they assumed he was going to win, but also the print they were the printers were on strike, so they had to print it earlier. Yeah, and that's probably Ch- the famous one is from the Chicago Tribune. Chicago yeah. Tribune, yeah, it says Dewey defeats Truman. It's the front page. They already wrote a whole article on how Dewey defeated Truman, the and Truman's on election day, Truman wins. And there's a picture of Truman laughing, like holding this newspaper up. Like I think I need to put that in my office. I was like, you know, it's not over till it's over, kind of thing. <laughs> like. 
Truman wins. And he does this because he gets on a train right before election time. And he's like, you know, I'm going to go talk to the American people. And everyone's like, uh, like you're kind of old and tired. Like, don't do that. He goes, no, no, I'm going to do it. And he gets on this train and he hits up like almost every state he possibly, I mean, a lot of, I don't think he hits up every state because obviously he can't hit up um, all of them, but he hits up so many states where he speaks from the back of the train. I mean, this is like, this is like politics 101 circa 1890. And he's doing this in like, you know, the fifties. Yeah. And a lot of and people, like, like 40,000 people are coming out to see him in like Montana. Yeah. He's like, so, I need to, I need so to he kind of, it got, he says, I can win this now. He kind of like gives him like a wake up call also. That's what he writes about that. It kind of inspired him that if these people are coming out to see him, that he does have, he, he can win. And that's yeah. what happens. And he wins. And, you know, he also invites, we've kind of forgot to mention that with the foreign policy, but I guess you could come in here too. You know, you probably guys have heard the term Iron Curtain. The Iron Curtain has fallen, you know, which is kind of like the epitome of the, you know, Cold War. And those, that term is coined by none other than Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, the, he's the one that says that an Iron Curtain has fallen across Europe. You could actually hear that speech. It's, it's on a famous YouTube. speech, yeah. Yeah. He gives that speech. Where? Do you from know, the Tom? White. Nope. I, from the White House, doesn't he? Nope. No, not from the White House. No, so Harry from, Truman is like, you know what? Yeah, he goes, I love Missouri. That's where I'm from. That's where I roll. You know how I roll. So he basically invites him yeah, um, right. to that's his right. hometown of Independence, Missouri, Independence, which is like... Missouri. Well, but, Churchill was out of power by that time in, in he was, England. Yeah. and But he was still loved in the United States. Oh, it was States. Churchill, yeah. He, in Churchill, the United States. The, they that's said he was like the favorite. Too. Yeah, Churchill was like the favorite, like the... Um, what was he called? Like the... America's favorite Englishman, America's favorite immigrant. His mom so was actually American. His mom yeah. was American. And I love his quote. He goes, you know, history will be kind to me for I shall write it. And he does. He actually, like Churchill, went out there and wrote his own history of the world. <laughs> and he was kind to himself. But yeah, he invited, um, Truman invited him to Independence, Missouri. And that's where the famous Iron Curtain speech. words are uttered. The Iron Curtain yeah. is bestowed upon Europe, yeah. So... Again, just kind of quickly, fair deal uh, with Truman. Uh, ultimately, most of the fair deal bills that he proposes um, are defeated, right? One, they don't get mainly it. because Truman's yeah, political conflicts with Congress. Uh, you know, he disagreed with most of his own political party. And two, pressing foreign policy concerns. You're right, Cold War, right? Um, you know, still, like a lot of liberal defenders kind of give Truman the credit for at least maintaining the New Deal reforms of FDR and he's the first one to really make civil rights a part of his liberal agenda, which again, cannot be stressed um, any more than it already is. Um, do you have anything else? Well, he, right, he, so- he was a lot of scandals and controversies basically in 19, in 1950 towards the end of his terms. Um, yeah. Plus they took out Superman against him at a yeah. time of war. Yeah. He had nothing, Yeah, you know? So, I like Ike. You like Ike. Everybody likes Ike for president. You know, like the- yeah. You, he had no chance oh. of beating Eisenhower. Yeah, at, no at, way. At Eisenhower, who in, like well, the Democrats you know, had power for like years, like since since yes. nineteen since nineteen thirty. So the, the country was definitely ready for something different, like a, cha- yeah. a change for a different type of. Uh, and we have to understand power. that we were still in the Korean War when he would have been yeah. running for another reelection. Yeah. And here, which was very, which was F- unpopular. Yes. And here's Ike that comes out. I almost said FDR. Here's Ike that 
is the guy that orchestrated D-Day, the guy that is given full credit for winning World War II in Europe. And this guy, you know, is basically taken out on the Republican ticket. First of all, he wasn't even sure if he was going to run on the Republican ticket. He was like, ah, I'm kind of independent. But once Ike runs on the Republican ticket, he basically says, yeah, I'll, I'll end this war. We'll, we'll bring our boys home. And Truman would have absolutely no chance whatsoever. So he doesn't run. He actually chooses to, to step down. And then um, after Ike's inauguration, January 1953, him and his wife traveled from, on a train from Washington back to Independence. And then he kind of does what most presidents do, uh, or ex-presidents. He starts writing his memoirs. Well, actually, before that, I found this, I guess, kind of merging into the fun facts a little bit. Him and his wife actually go on a road tour of the country. They start driving around the country. I don't know if you oh, saw really? this. Yeah. And he was shocked that people recognized him. This was before, like, nowadays that would never happen because you'd also have a Secret Service detail around him. That didn't happen during this time. So he's just driving around the country and people in the, he's going to these, like, small little, like, mom and pop diners and stuff like that. And people are like, is that Harry Truman? Like, what is going on? Um, and it took them, they actually did this for 19 days. They just drove all around the country. And um, he actually got pulled over for, for speeding at one point. And the cop recognized him, like, are you, you're Harry Truman? President Truman is like, yeah. So the cop's like, okay. And he didn't give him a ticket or anything like that. It's, yeah, can you sign this? Yeah, it was just like, <laughs> all right, thank you like for, for being president. But uh, it was oh, just, they, they, he didn't understand like the almost like celebrity that he was of being a, a former president. Yeah. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't understand it. All right, so do you have any other fun facts? Well, uh, there's a whole bunch of fun facts about him and stuff like that. One that I found that was kind of interesting, I found a couple, was that we said earlier, right, his name was Harry S. Truman. Oh, yeah, yeah, the infamous S. But the S actually stood for absolutely nothing. Yes. And that's because his parents couldn't decide on uh, whose relative's name to start it. And they both started with an S. So they just called him. So his middle initial was just S. And he started putting a uh, period after it. And um, mm -hmm. that's basically how it came. <laughs> Harry S. Truman. Yes, it's just an S. <laughs> it's S stands for the S. Um, the other one is his motto, the buck stops, stops here. here. Mm -hmm very famous he had that on his desk in a white house like he goes yeah and you, you can tell me whatever you want but i make the final decision that the bucks which again there. is why a lot of the legislative branch didn't like him because they had to deal with this with, with roosevelt and now they're dealing with him again and they didn't like the fact that the executive branch was getting such so much power yeah so that, that that was a major issue i also saw that his um in 2017 there was a play written about him called Give Him really? Hell, Harry, and his grandson actually played him in the play. Huh. So that's, that's kind of cool. He was like, you know. That's kind of really cool. He wasn't really, he was, they said he was just like a part-time actor, but he actually, his grandson is the chairman. He runs the um, Truman Library in Kansas City, Missouri. So he decided to, uh, he like listened to old voice recordings of his grandfather and then played him in the, played him in the play. Came out in 2017, so it's pretty recent. We also mentioned this before uh, when we did our podcast on assassinations, but yeah. he was nearly assassinated. Yeah, he was like, oh, he went by the window. He's like, what's going on out there? And it was like, get down and try to kill him, Mr. President. He's like, I want to see what's going on. Yeah, I was popping up a lot, actually, when I was doing my research, the assassination attempt. It's something yeah. that's not really talked about, but it's there. And obviously, everyone knows that he was a uh, clothing shop owner beforehand that basically went bankrupt. So he was a failed businessman, basically a, a dry cleaner's. He winds yeah. up becoming president. <laughs> you know what's really kind of interesting here is Harry Truman is a McCullough. Who writes the document? I mean, the biography of him. There's a lot that wins a Pulitzer Prize. Hold on, but I'm going to Google it. 
Truman biography. Who wrote it? McCullough, David McCullough. McCullough. Yeah, it wins the uh, Pulitzer's Prize. And, you know, that book kind of ushers him back into yeah. like popular culture. Yeah. People are like, you know what? He was a very uh, quietly, uh, you know, undervalued but important domestically in foreign policy presence. Yeah, most historians looking back now, they do favor his, they do look back at his presidency in a favorable light. They do say he did more positives than negatives. More, more things came out that helped the country and hurt the country. And especially when they look at the civil rights. He truly wanted to do more with civil rights, but yeah. he was definitely handcuffed there. And that's what the beauty of what he did, yeah. because he goes, you know what? I'm the commander in chief. I could use the executive power to just desegregate. The one thing he could have done, right, that he couldn't have been stopped on was the military as a commander in chief. So that is what he does. Yeah. You know, That's it's right. like one he big middle it. finger, I guess. And he did all this too. He never, remember, he never attended college. No. So he no. did all this. He owned like a clothing store. Yeah. He, was, he did all this without attending college. We should, yeah, we should have started with that. Uh, right? Cut it and put it in the beginning, Pete. Yeah, man. Nah, that's cool. But in the year 2000, C-SPAN did a poll ranking the U.S. presidents, right? Mm-hmm. Of, you know, by, it was done by historians and scholars, old presidential historians and scholars to, you know, they had different criteria to rank probably the most important presidents uh, in American history. And Harry Truman actually ranked fifth. He's behind Lincoln, FDR, Washington, and Teddy Roosevelt. Like, I was not expecting that. Yeah, he's, I, I, that's, but but when you look at it, and when he was in power, remember all those guys were presidents basically when there was wars happening, right? Wars are major events taking place in the country. He should be up there. Yeah, uh, he's he, again. We talked about in the beginning. He's to bring this back full circle. He's the president at, in making important decisions at the tail end of the largest conflict this country was ever in, militarily wise, right? In World War Two, and yeah. he's making these decisions and he's ushering us into the post-war world as a superpower. He's the first president that's really ushering us up in peacetime as a superpower. He's the first president that's fighting this massive cold war when fighting these little smaller hot wars all over the place and you know, trying to yeah. stop communism. He's setting foreign policy. That Truman Doctrine sets American foreign policy up, up until the end of the cold war. Yeah, I'm saying until 1990s. Yeah. The U.S. foreign policy is, is contain- defined by yeah, this guy. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess so, so you think of it in that context, yeah, he should be up there in the top five, top definitely top ten, but yeah, top five. I can see that. I can see why people put him up there. Crazy stuff. Don't know why you know Grover, well, hope, Grover yeah, Cleveland should be a little higher, but you know whatever. <laughs> Grover Cleveland, maybe Taft, Polk. I I guess uh, Polk. You know what? <laughs> we need to get uh, you know Mr. Kevin Kane, who I used to teach with. Uh, shout out to Mr. Mr. Kane over there. Well, you know, he's too busy. Um, he's too busy refing volleyball. Volleyball's not happening. Right? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? So hi, hi, Kevin, from both of us. I think we need to get him here if we start talking yeah, about Polk. Polk. That's his favorite president. Uh, I think every every history teacher has their favorite president, right? But yeah, uh, yeah. I think again, th- you know, I think it was fun to try try to get back to the presidents a little bit. I think you know, it's we something we should do president. at least every couple months. Right, it's been we since to, watching. We have to talk yeah. about the presidents. We'll work our way through. We have. Uh, especially, especially with the uh, <laughs> debate with the presidential debate. No, the presidential election coming up on Tuesday. You know, it's important to talk yeah. about these things. Actually, we should have done like a, yeah. And this is going to drop. This is going to drop a day before. We probably so should have done like an go. electoral college. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, we messed up. Or like an election one, like up. election of eighteen hundred. We did or something talk like about that. that. We did talk about that. Then we forgot. No, uh, all right. Happened. We got excited when we mentioned Truman. That was why. That's. Right. <laughs> 
All right. So I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast today. And uh, I'm, I'm, we certainly did, I guess, until next time. Take care, guys. Take it easy. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.